Hi, this is Sheila back with podcast number six. First of all, tonight I want to say I'm sorry it's taken so long for me to get new podcast on here. I was hoping by now to have some stories from all of you, or either meet someone who has some stories for me to put on here. But since that's not happening right now, tonight I want to do things different. I bought a book. It's called My Proof of Survival. It's a very good book, and it has some very good stories in it. So tonight I'm going to be reading some of those stories to you. Uh, Also, I want to thank everyone that has come and joined me on MySpace. And if you hadn't joined me there yet, please do so. Also, I want to ask you again, if you or anyone you know has any true stories to put on, if you could email them to me at carolinagoes with an S at yahoo.com, I'll be glad to get them on for you, and I promise it won't take me as long as it's been taking me. Um, okay, let's begin. family friend of 40 years died on December 3, 1993. His name was Joe G., and he lived in Arizona. After his memorial service, I spent time at his condo packing and throwing things out. As I weeded through his possessions, I apologized out loud to Joe for having to do it. Between tears and laughter, I teased him about how much of a pack rat he had become. In his drawers and closets were every bag and box that he had come his way in his two and a half years that he had lived there. Two boxes in particular were just the right size for packing dishes, so I packed them up and left for lunch. Knowing that only the property manager, company, and I had access to the condo helped me reason away what happened next. Upon returning, I found that on each of the two boxes were letters in black magic marker written in a shaky hand that spelled out, Living. Well, I thought I must have missed that when I packed the boxes. After more packing and cleaning, eight o'clock rolled around and I left for dinner. I couldn't chase away the anxiety about returning after dark to stay there by myself but I went back anyway. The same two boxes were still in the hallway, but someone or something had written living two more times. Now there are four words that I hadn't seen before. As much as I tried to convince myself that those words were there before I left, I didn't believe it. 
I still had the feeling that I was not alone. So I grabbed my things and stayed at the motel seven miles down the road. I headed back to the condo the next morning thinking how silly I had been to spend the extra money. I was sure it was just my imagination. That morning the sun was shining through the window and the place looked really cheery. Everything was just where I had left it. Even a sign of relief, I put down my purse and walked to the center of the living room to finish packing. What I saw next took my breath away. On six of the boxes I found the words living, written very clearly in black magic marker. I knew every single one of those boxes had been unmarked because I had examined them thoroughly after the previous day's scare. I truly believed Joe was there to let me know that even though he didn't get to say goodbye in person, he was still near and still alive. September the 13th, 1949, without hope of survival. Low birth weight babies have a difficult time, often living only weeks or months. My mother was six months pregnant with me when I was born, and I weighed only one pound and seven ounces. The medical professionals were not encouraged, saying that no baby had ever survived at that hospital weighing so little. One morning, my mother was laying in the hospital bed, depressed and worried. She didn't want to believe what the doctors and nurses were telling her. Then two men came in and sat on the edge of the bed. One was her father. The other was a handsome man whom she had only seen in photographs. He was her father-in-law. Both of these men were dead. Her dad had died two years before I was born and her father-in-law had died when my father was ten. She told me she wasn't afraid. I was surrounded by a peace, peaceful feeling, something I couldn't explain, she said. My grandfather told her, Don't worry or listen to your doctors. They are wrong. Your baby will survive and grow up to be a wonderful and beautiful daughter. The doctors and the nurses noticed a change in my mother's attitude after this. To their minds, she wasn't facing the facts. They explained that the odds were a million to one that I would survive. Even if I did, they told her, I would have too many health problems. They told her to even pray that I would die so I would not suffer. My mother smiled and kept her positive attitude. I kept fighting, and the doctors shook their head in amazement. 
Mother left the hospital and walked back every day to stare at me through the glass wall. Back then you weren't allowed to hold a baby. Parents couldn't even enter the room of a premature nursery. I gained weight slowly. The tubes were removed one by one, and I began to look like a normal baby. Mother told me that you could have held me in the palm of her hand when I was born. On Christmas Day, after more than three months in the hospital, I was brought home. I weighed five pounds. My grandfathers delivered a message, and my mother believed them. visited me in California in the mid-1960s. I took them to a New Thought Church. It was their first experience with this kind of service, and they both loved it, especially the hymn called Doxology. Having been Catholic all their lives, they had never heard the song before. In the early 1970s, when I moved back home with them, they used to love to sing that song together. My dad developed cancer and died within six months. My mom lived five weeks longer and died of a broken heart. They had been married for over 60 years, and despite their advanced age, their passing was very painful for me. One year later, I was visited by my sister in the Bahamas. On my flight over there, I became very lonely for my parents. I prayed that I would be given a sign that they would contact me from the other side. I was walking along, alone on the island three days later. It was a beautiful day and I was enjoying the sun and the cool breeze. I heard organ music coming from the woods. I walked to the music and saw a tiny church in the middle of nowhere. I entered the building and saw an elderly lady sitting at an organ. We smiled at each other and I sat down. She played a number of hymns. Then she looked at me and said, This hymn is for you. I was shocked when she started playing the doxology. Mom and Dad's favorite hymn was played for me on a remote island in the Bahamas. I knew they were sending me a message.
the death of my wife Florence, I decided to move to a smaller home and rent the house that we had occupied. In June of 1977, my friend Betty was helping me pack for the move. I placed a small figurine in a box on the table. The box was about two-thirds full and the figurine laid about four inches from the top of the box. Several minutes later, as we continued to pack, I said to Betty, I wonder what Florence would say if she knew I was renting the house to the people of the blank religion. This was a religion whose teachings were at odds with those of my wife's church. Immediately after I asked this question, something hit the floor with a loud crash. It was the figurine. There was no way it could have fallen on its own out of the box on top of the table because, as I said, it was a good four inches below the top of the box. As we continued to pack, I mused about the memory of Florence's quick temper. During our life together, if she had an object in her hand when something happened or she was upset, the object was given a quick pitch to the floor. Apparently, her transition did not change her temper. had several light strokes. The last one in the fall of 1942 left him bedridden for three months before he died. I had to take care of him as if he were a child. He had to be watched all the time so that he would not harm himself or someone else. Before I ever sat down to eat, I fed him first and sat with him while he smoked his pipe because otherwise he would hide it still lit under the covers. Two weeks after his passing, we were all seated at the dining room table for the evening meal when suddenly I heard him call, Girl! Girl! As he was in the habit of doing, whenever he, we would sit down to eat, I was always jumping up to see what he needed. I started to get up to go to him when it dawned on me that he was no longer with us. I went on eating. My nine-year-old son glanced up at me and said, Mom, Grandpa just called you. His eyes got big when he too remembered that Grandpa was no longer alive. Both of us heard him plainly, but we said nothing more. Several times after that, my husband and I were awakened during the night by the sound of my Grandpa's rocking chair. But when we went into his room to check, there was no more rocking.
My mother died on October the 31st of 1997. Her death was especially hard for me because we had grown so close during her last year. I wasn't there when she died, and this is a fact that's always stayed with me. I had the task of picking out her tombstone. I wanted something nice, so I ordered a stone with the flower etchings on it. They told me that this might take a bit longer due to the extra etching. My husband Miles often sleeps in the spare bedroom where I had set up my mother's bed. Miles is one of those people who never remembers his dream. One day in November, he came into our room and announced that he had just talked to my mother. This didn't upset him. He was just more in a state of awe. Miles said that Mother told him to tell me to get the headstone on her grave because she was tired of telling folks who I am. She mentioned the flowers that were being etched on her stone. I hadn't told Miles about this because it cost so much. I knew in my heart that Mother talked to Miles that morning. No one else had known about the flowers, and her quotations sounded exactly like what she would have said to me. Of course, I immediately had the headstone job rushed so that Mom wouldn't have to tell folks who she was. after my husband's unexpected death in 1992, his spirit came to visit. I had fallen asleep in bed when my stereo woke me up playing full blast. It startled me, but I didn't think much of it. I assumed that I had left it on accidentally, and then I remembered that it had not been on the night before. The next day, I mentioned this incident to a friend of mine. Eleanor, she said, Paul came to visit last night. My friend had been awakened on the sofa by her dog barking at the door. She turned to see what had upset the dog, and she saw Paul standing by the door in white clothes. She sat up and rubbed her eyes and said his name, but he was gone. On Paul's birthday in 1997, my daughter, my daughter Katie called to say that she needed a ride home. When I went to the car, I had a message on my cell phone. That was strange because my daughter was the only one who ever called me on it. When I received the message, I was shocked to find that the entire conversation that I had had with my daughter on my home phone was recorded onto my cell phone voicemail. I have been told that this is impossible. Paul's favorite time of year was the holidays. That same year, we were again packing for Christmas vacation. Katie had a Tamagotchi doll 
which were all the rage a few years back. The batteries had run dead, and she had not played with it for months. While she was packing, it began to beat. She looked at it in its little display window, read, Hi, Katie. Since there was no way to type anything into this toy, I knew that it was Paul. After a while, the screen went blank. This happened again on Christmas Day. Since Paul was quite a bit older than me, he always joked about coming back to visit if he died first. I now know that he meant it. It has been more than a year since his last visit. I miss him, but it was time for his spirit to move on. Untimely passing in 1957, Dad heard, had her portrait framed in gold and placed it on the mantel as a constant reminder of the way she always watched over her family. In December of 1964, I was in Pennsylvania's mountains hunting deer with my wife's uncle and cousin as guest of a local rod and gun club. While the others visited with friends at the clubhouse, I hunted alone. Because I was unfamiliar with the area, I stuck to an old dirt trail. Suddenly, I saw Mom, thirty yards to my right, among the tree shadows, but only her head and shoulders were visible, as though her portrait had been transported to this spot, without the gold frame, and suspended a foot above the ground. I was dumbstruck, not knowing what had happened or why. Then I remembered my binoculars, and I lifted them to my eyes. There she was, smiling at me. Hello, Mom, I said silently, expecting some kind of message, but none came. I watched, and I waited for what seemed like five minutes, but what I later realized was probably no more than thirty seconds. Then slowly, her image faded. Goodbye, Mom, I said, and thank you for the visit. Still puzzled. I tried to go on hunting. I resumed my slow pace, but before I covered fifty yards, a rifle shot rang out from the top of the hill hillside to my left. I heard the bullet, bullet smack into a tree at head height twenty yards ahead of me, and I saw the bark chips fly off the tree. Then I knew why Mom was there. She only had to, to delay me long enough for me to avoid meeting a bullet, and she did it in a way that I could accept. There was no doubt in my mind that I would not have walked away from there if she had not intervened. I made no effort to identify the shooter. I exited as quickly and quietly as possible, telling no one at the clubhouse. That memory stirs up many emotions. 
Mom's visit remains very comforting even after all these years. I know she still watches over her family. for listening that's all I have for tonight because it's getting late here but since my next podcast will more than likely be coming out of this book too it won't take me as long to get it on here Uh, I want to thank you again for listening and I hope you all have a good night